God, thank you for the stage you've given us. Thank you for this uh, time we have to come together as your people and open your word. I ask that you would challenge us and uh, help us to grow in our fear of the Lord. Uh, thank you for this study that you've given us, and I pray that you would help us to uh, learn from it and be able to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are finishing up this. Uh, it's been five, this is the fifth week, the fear of the Lord. And so I'm going to review very quickly the first four four weeks. And so it's going to be... Uh, just kind of bullet points, things like that, just to, so we can be reminded as to where we've been. Uh, week one, we defined what the fear of the Lord is, and it was defined as uh, to fear God is to respond to him in awe, trust, obedience, and worship. And so, of course, we talked for, you know, 40 minutes or however long it was that night about that, but that's kind of what it boils down to, is to respond to God in awe, trust, obedience, and worship. Uh, week two, we looked at four reasons to fear God. The first one is that God is infinitely holy, that God is completely and totally other. We cannot grasp the holiness and the greatness of God. And so because of that, he is to be feared. Um, the next thing we talked about that night was that, or, just, or the next reason was that God commands us to fear him. So not only is he Worthy of our fear, not only is he infinitely holy, he says, by the way, you are to do this. So God commands us to fear him. Uh, the third reason is that there are consequences for disobedience. Um, nobody likes to be disciplined. But as believers, when we sin and God disciplines us, he's our loving heavenly father who does that, and it's for our good. And so when God disciplines us, he does it with the end goal in mind. It's not out of anger or vindictiveness or any of those kind of things. It's out of uh, that we would grow and become more like him. And God has to punish sin. So he disciplines us as his children. But there are consequences for our disobedience. Uh, and finally, the fourth reason is that judgment is coming. And what we talked about there was that every single one of us in here, every single person who's ever lived or who will ever live, will stand before God and give an answer for their life at some point. Now, those who don't know the Lord will be punished for every sin they've ever committed, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire and separated from God for all of eternity. But those who are Christians will be judged for how we built our life. The foundation is Jesus Christ, so how have you been building your life? And uh, our motives will be judged, the things that we've done will be judged, and so God... Uh, a day of judgment is coming, and every single person will stand before the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that is a scary thought, is that one-on-one, -on -one, we will stand before God. And so he is to be feared. We moved on in, in week three, and we looked at six characteristics of the fear of the Lord. The first characteristic is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So knowledge, the knowledge of God, who God is. We begin to learn his word and what it says. Uh, we find out what, uh, what God is like as revealed um, in his word in scripture. The second characteristic is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so wisdom is a little, is different than knowledge. Wisdom is the skill to live, to live this knowledge that we have out. So it's the skill of right living. And so it begins with knowledge. If we don't know God, we can't, uh, we can't uh, be wise. So it begins with the knowledge of God, but then it also leads to wisdom, which is practically living that out. 
Uh, the third characteristic we looked at is that the fear of the Lord hates evil and turns from it. And so we have to hate the things. If we fear God, we love God, we will hate the things that God hates. We will love the things that God loves. We will want to uh, seek to please him. So we are to hate evil and turn from it. The fourth characteristic we looked at was that the fear of the Lord produces a strong confidence in God. Is that no matter what happens in life, we trust that God is good and that God has good intentions and that we belong to him. That God's in control of all these, all of this stuff. The big things, the little things, there's a strong confidence in God for those who fear him. The fifth characteristic is the fear of the Lord is the source of life. It's the source of life. Uh, it, it brings uh, life to our, uh, first of all, when we came to know Christ, um, we were brought to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God breathed life into our dead souls, and uh, we became alive spiritually. And uh, it is the fear of the Lord that is the source of this life that gives us the, uh, the power even to go out and to live life that brings honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then number six, the sixth characteristic, is the fear of the Lord is a source of delight. That Do you delight in the fear of the Lord? Do you delight in the Lord at all? Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give, your, give you the desires of your heart. Now, a lot of people take that out of context. They say, I'll delight myself in the Lord so I get what I want. But what does that verse actually mean? What is it actually saying? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he's going to give you his desires. So do you delight in the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a source of this delight. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that the Messiah delighted in the fear of the Lord. And so we saw that that as we talked about that point um, as well. And then last week, last week, I know this is just a quick review of where we've been. But last week we looked at five keys to obtaining the fear of the Lord. So how do we obtain the fear of the Lord? Well, the first one we saw out of Proverbs chapter 2. Actually, we were in Proverbs chapter 2 the whole time. Um, but it says, receive my words and treasure my commands. The fear of the Lord and understanding the fear of the Lord begins with receiving God's words and treasuring his commands. So what is God's word? It's the scripture. And it's all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. It's God's total word. We are to receive his words and to treasure it. Treasure it. It's, it's priceless. The second thing we saw, a second key, is to make your ear attentive to wisdom. Is that we actually listen to what God says. We're really good a lot of times in conversation at hearing, but not really listening. So I may hear what you say, but I'm not really listening to what, you're, what you say. And so we are to make our ear attentive to wisdom, to we're actually not just hearing God's word, not just reading God's word, but we're really uh, being attentive to actually listen to what it says. The third key is to incline your heart to understanding. And this, was the, this is the most simple of the points, but incline my heart to understanding is this practical applying it in my life. That when I read God's word or I hear it preached, proclaimed, and God speaks to me that I actually do it. Now this is a simple thing, but it's actually very, very hard to do. I mean, it's simple to understand, but it's very hard to put into practice. And so we are to incline our hearts to understanding. The fourth key that we saw 
is that we are to call out for insight and to raise our voice for understanding. Is that we call out, we cry out to God and ask him for wisdom, to ask him for insight, to ask him for discernment, to ask him for understanding. Because the Bible promises that if we cry out and we ask God, he will give that to us. So we call out, we cry out for insight, raise our voice for understanding. And finally, the fifth key to obtaining the fear of the Lord is to seek and search for it as if it was hidden treasure. Is do you see God's word as treasure? Do you see it as priceless? Because the promise is, in Proverbs chapter 2, it says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So if you desire to understand the fear of the Lord, spider, so, little bitty one, he's going to bite me. But, um, but uh, if we seek and we see it as a treasure, it says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. It's not just going to happen. It takes diligence. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes digging in and to think about what God's word says, to meditate on it day and night. It says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. So it talked about these five characteristics, these five uh, keys, I guess, to obtaining the fear of the Lord, to receive his words. Treasure his commands to make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding, and to seek and to search for it. See, every, in every one of those, what's one word we could use? It takes diligence. It takes work. But, it, but anything that's worth, <laughs> worthwhile uh, takes work, does it not? And so it takes work to, to come to know the Lord deeper in a deeper way and understand the fear of the Lord. So that was the first four weeks. First four weeks kind of summed up. But as we finish up this series, what we're going to see, what we're going to finish up with is that we will see that God alone is worthy to be feared. And that is the direction we'll be going tonight is that God alone is worthy to be feared. He's to be feared above all, all things. And so let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to be at Deuteronomy, and then we're going to go to uh, Isaiah after that for the rest of the night. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 12, verses 12 through 22. It says, And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. That uh, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, sojourner uh, giving, food, giving him food and clothing. 
blood of the sojourner, therefore, for you were so, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that uh, your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So this is our starting place tonight, that God alone is worthy of our fear. So what does God require of his people? Now he's talking to Israel here, talking to the nation of Israel. We are not Israel. The church is not Israel. But we can still apply this um, to, our, to our lives today. What does God require of his people? The first thing he says is to fear him in verses 12, verse 12. It's to fear him. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what it means to fear him because we've done that for the last four weeks. And we just kind of reviewed what that means. Um, but we are to fear him. Second thing that he tells him to do, that what does God require of his people? To walk in his ways. Is that we would walk the way that Christ walks. What are the things that God loves? We love those things. What are the things that God hates? We hate those things. Uh, that we seek his word, we find out the ways of God. This is what we are to do. God requires this of his people. Again, the third thing, what does God require of his people? To love him. What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With everything that you are, you are to love him with all of your being. God requires that his people love him. How do we know that we love God? If we obey his commands. Scripture is very clear. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So how do we, how do we know we love God? Are you serving him? Are you obey, being obedient to him? These are evidences that we belong to Christ. But we are to love him. The fourth thing, what does God require of his people? To serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So a couple of questions is, are you serving the Lord? Are you serving somewhere? Are you serving the Lord in some capacity? But it says, when you do it, do it with all your heart and with all your soul. So are you serving the Lord just half-heartedly, just giving half, just giving kind of a little bit of effort? Are you doing it with all your heart? Are you giving it, giving it your best? says, serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul. So when we serve the Lord, God, again, this gets to the, the uh, motives. What is my motive? The motives are involved. And that I'm to do it with everything that I am. Why? Because I recognize who God is. If I don't fear God, I'm not going to give very good effort. If I fear God and I understand who he is and I'm walking in his ways and I'm loving him, then I'm going to serve him with everything that I am. And finally, the fifth thing, what does God require of his people? To keep the commandments of the Lord. And by the way, he says, which is for your good. He says, God's commands are for our good. We don't know what's best. Oftentimes, we don't know what's best for us. God knows what's best for us. And so he, when, he set the, when he sets boundaries in Scripture, and there's boundaries, and, and see them as that way. See them as protection. It's God's divine protection. Is these boundaries that he puts in place. And when we abide within the boundaries, life goes better. We honor God in doing that and obeying his commands and staying inside the boundaries. And it says, this is for your good. 
And it's just like those uh, when you have, your, have kids. Some of y'all are grown and they've moved on. Some of you still have them now in, in the home. There's boundaries. There's rules that are in place. Why? Because we love them and we want what's best for them. And so we set boundaries. We place these things, particularly like uh, in this day and age, with technology and things like that. There has to be boundaries. There has to be boundaries. This is why we have curfews. This is why we like to know who their friends are. We like to know these things because we want to protect them. Because we understand what can happen outside of God's boundaries. That their life could be destroyed. And so... Uh, The Lord does this for us as well. He is our perfect Heavenly Father. None of us in here are perfect, but God is. And he sets boundaries and says, these are for your good. So keep these commandments. They're for, I have your best interest in mind. So why does God require this of his people? In short, it's because he alone is worthy. He alone is, he requires this because he alone is worthy. Is worthy. So uh, we'll read verses 14 through 22 again in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who is not partial and and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So why does God require this of his people? Because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to be feared He alone is worthy to be praised. He alone is worthy of all honor and all glory. And this is why he requires this. The verses 14 through 22, a few things it mentions here, says basically, and I'm going to summarize and paraphrase my own words, is that all the universe belongs to him. It says the heavens of the heaven and the heavens of heaven, meaning everything. The entire universe and everything in it belongs to him. We can't grasp the, how big and how huge that God is. That all this belongs to him. You think about the, you know, we have the Hubble telescope and things like that. And uh, we can see the, what they call the known universe. But we don't know what's actually out there. And you can see some amazing things. You go to the Hubble telescope uh, site and there's some amazing things out there. And God has given us the ability to see. You know, these guys, of course, they couldn't see that. But we, we have the technology where we can see these things now even more. And this is just the known universe. We don't know how big it is. It says all this belongs to God. All the universe belongs to him and everything in it. Next thing we see is that he is alone is worthy because of his love for his people. 
See, you have this, this God who the whole universe belongs to him, yet he cares about us. We are small, yet God loves us and he cares about us. Uh, you were chosen in him, according to Ephesians 1.4. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, before the world ever existed, before there was a universe. You were chosen in him. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. But God's word teaches that, and I believe it. We see that in those verses. The Lord, he says, the Lord is your God. Is The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. We have some people in high places, politicians and, and world rulers, things like that, who think they are the Lord of all lords. Well, they are not. It says God is the God of all gods. He is the Lord of all lords. And we need to recognize that and realize that and submit ourselves to him. Next thing we see is that God is, in those verses, that God is great. And the words that use here says God is great, he's mighty, and he's awesome. And it says he's impartial. He doesn't take a bribe. So God, he is, he is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. You can't bribe him. You can't twist his arm. You can't manipulate him. He has a plan, and he's going to fulfill that plan. He is great. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is impartial. We see that he is the God who executes justice, and I'll just say for the vulnerable. He mentions orphans and widows and, and, and those who are sojourners, those who are strangers in, in, in the land. It says that God, um, that, that God executes justice for those. It also mentions how he is the great provider, that he is our provider. Um, I read an article today that says that that Midland is number one in the nation of in, inflation over the last year. But does that matter to God? Does the economy matter to God? Does inflation matter to him? No. It says that God is our provider. And so he, is, he, he takes care of us. Verses 20 and 21 says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. He alone is worthy of our fear. He alone is worthy of our praise, of our obedience, and of our worship. And that is how, again, we're going to go to Isaiah here in a minute, but that's, why, that's how we're going to finish this series tonight. Is we're going to focus on the greatness of God. And because he is great, because of his greatness, he is worthy, alone is worthy of our worship. So let's finish out this series by looking at the greatness of our God as we read from the book of Isaiah. So go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. And if you've never read Isaiah 40 through like 49, uh, I would encourage you to go and do that. Because these chapters in particular show and speak of the greatness of God. So the first passage is going to be a long one, then they'll be short after that. But Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 31. So it's chapter, verse 9 through the end of the chapter. But listen, as we're talking about the greatness of God, listen to what it says. It says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, not fear. 
Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord who comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows, uh, shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands with fine, like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for, the burnt, uh, for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness, com- or what likeness compare uh, with him? An idol, a craftsman cast it, and goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver, uh, silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing? It makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand right is disregarded by my God? Have, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth, youths uh, faint, shall faint and be weary, and young men... Uh, shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength like them. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So here we see a tremendous passage on the greatness of God. A few things that are mentioned. It says he measures the waters in the heavens with a span. Be like the palm of your hand. That'd be like the, that'd be like the hollow of your hand. Is that he measures it with a span. The waters uh, in the heavens. It says he enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And he weighed, weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. And if you've ever, ever been to the mountains, and the, you see the, how majestic they are. It says to God, there's like weight in a scale. We see that he needs no counsel. It says who has counseled him? Who has, taught him, who has helped him understand and it's a rhetorical question because what's the answer? No one. It's a rhetorical question. All this was that we read there. 
says that the nations are a drop in the bucket. Nations come, nations go, and every single one of them is under the sovereign plan of God. And so whatever even, and this can give us comfort as we look around our, ni- our nation, our culture, our society, and we see, the, uh, see what's happening, um, that nothing's outside the control, the sovereign control of God. Nations come, nations go. Leaders come, leaders go. Why are they there? Because God placed them there. He placed the na- those nations there uh, for a time. He's placed leaders there for a time and for his purpose, even if we don't understand that. It says the nations are dropping the bucket. You think about a five-gallon bucket of water, you drop a, a drop in there. It says that's, that's all the nations throughout history that are dropping the bucket. They're nothing in comparison to God. We read here that no one or nothing can compare with God. He has no equal. He has no rival. No one compares with him. Um, this, another thing we saw in there is that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. So who gets credit for finding out and discovering the earth was round? You know, some might say Columbus, some might say uh, some other people, but whatever, regardless, it doesn't matter. The Bible was written long before then. Isaiah was written long before then. And what does it say? It is the Lord who sits above the circle of the earth. It says its inhabitants are like grasshoppers in his sight. It says he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. So just imagine this, when, when God created... And he opened, he just stretched it out, the universe, like it's a curtain. It says, this is our God. He is great. It says he's the creator of all the stars. He calls them the host here, but he's talking about the stars. It says he calls them each by name. It says not one is missing. Not one is missing. So it is he who calls, uh, uh, created all the stars, calls them each by name, And by the greatness of his might, not one is missing. Not one. And so people, you know, you could, I'm not sure who who you'd contact, but, you know, you can name a star after somebody. They already have names. So God named them. uh, But he knows every single one of them so that not one is missing. Since he does not grow faint or weary, and he is the source of all strength, and his understanding is unsearchable. We saw all those things in this short passage in Isaiah. So go to Isaiah chapter 42. Verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I do not share my glory with any other. He is the Lord. He is God Almighty, and he will not give his glory to anything else. Uh, Isaiah chapter 44. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it up before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare uh, what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? 
and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is no other God. There is one God. There is one God, God Almighty. And so he, he, is, he is making that claim right here, that there is no other God. He does that again in Isaiah chapter 44, or 45. Go to chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 18. It says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. Go to verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. Are you seeing a theme here? By myself I have sworn from my mouth, has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Uh, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So he says again, there is no other God. And he says, every knee will bow and every tongue, he says, will swear allegiance to him. In Philippians, we are told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God is saying that here as well, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to him. Chapter 46, Isaiah 46. Verse uh, 5, and then we'll go to verse, verses 8 through 10. So Isaiah 46, verse 5. It says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare, uh, compare me? That we may be alike. Then verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you, trans, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times. Things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish my purpose. So we see that God has no comparison. He has no rival. For, for there to be a rivalry, think about a sporting event. For there to be a rivalry, occasionally the other team has to win. He has no rival. There's no one who compares. Nothing's even close. He, he has no comparison. He has no rival. God will accomplish his plan, and he says, I will do it. There's nothing that can stop that. Go to Isaiah chapter 48. Verses 12 and 13. It says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call, call to them, they stand forth together. He says, I am the first and I am the last. That he is God Almighty, the eternally existent one, the self-existent one. Uh, he needs nothing from us. He needs nothing from anybody. Uh, he needs nothing. He is worthy of our fear. I'd, I'm gonna, we're not going to go read it, but I'd, I'd encourage you to go read Job 
verses 38 through four, or chapters 40, 38 through 42. Uh, go read those chapters, read those today. This is at the end when, after Job has gone through a horrible time, uh, his friends come and they blame him for, uh, surely you have to be living in sin for this to happen to you. And we know the case that was not, that was not true. And then Job, he, he begins to kind of accuse God of mistreating him. And then God comes and begins to talk to him. He says, and it's funny because he pretty much tells him, man up. I'm about to ask you some questions and I want, I want you to answer. Uh, does Job answer any of the questions? No. <laughs> he goes, he is silent. And so I encourage you to go read Job. And, and, and God commences there. He, he goes on to begin to talk about his greatness. And that Job, you didn't know what was going on. You don't have that kind of ability. You don't have that power. He says, I do. And so go read that and stand in awe of God's greatness because he alone is worthy of our fear. So I'd encourage you to go home and read that. It doesn't take real long to do, but you read about all kinds of crazy things, uh, things that sound like uh, dinosaurs and things like that. It talks about uh, constellations, for, in, for uh, instance, Orion is mentioned. It is God who placed it there. Those things haven't changed. And so go read those and stand in awe of God's greatness. So wrapping this up to, to some application here. First of all, first thing is that we are very, and I hope as we talk about the greatness of God, we have this, this sense of how small we really are. We tend to be prideful as human beings. We tend to think we we're pretty special. We tend to think we can do some great things. But in all actuality, we are very, very small. Yet God knows us and he loves us. He knows us and he loves us anyways. And so we want to guard application here in, in light of God's greatness and how small we are and his love for us. Guard against giving our fear. Guard against giving our praise and our affections to the things of this world. And it's so subtle and it's so easy to do. It's that we begin to give our affection to the things of the world. If we're not careful, that becomes idolatry. Because idolatry, because it's taken the place of God. We need to guard against this. Um, again, we tend to think we're pretty, oftentimes, that we're pretty um, bigger than we are. And that's called pride. And we have to guard against this. Next thing to, as an application is that we need to recognize, and I've said this multiple times tonight, that only God is worthy of our fear, our awe, our trust, obedience, and worship. Nothing else. No one else in the world, nothing else in the world, nothing in this entire universe deserves and is worthy of all trust, obedience, worship, and fear of the Lord. Also, we haven't talked about this in the last couple of weeks, but um, if we, when, we become, when we fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord kills the fear of man. We have nothing to fear. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? And then Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? And ultimately, what can man do to you? What's the worst they could do to you? I guess kill you. Then what? They're in the presence of the Lord. And David, you know, he was running from his enemies. and Oftentimes, he had, he had a lot of enemies and things like that. And he says, what can man do to me? When we fear the Lord, when we love him, when we serve him with all of our heart, when we reverence him, when we stand in awe of him, when we obey him, when we worship him, when we're fearing the Lord, we have no, it kills the fear of man. Because who do we seek to please when we're living that way? God. We don't, have, we don't care about pleasing man. We care about pleasing God. So the fear of God kills the fear of man. And finally, we'll end with a question. Uh, we've talked over the last five weeks about a lot of different things. So the final question, last question is, will you live your life in the fear of the Lord? Again, that is a choice. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes diligence. It takes effort. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to put the time in, the diligence in, to come to, to the knowledge of the Lord and to grow in your fear of the Lord? Will you live that way? Let's pray. God, thank you again for this time we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be people who would live in the fear of the Lord. That we would recognize uh, your greatness. We recognize how big you are and how small that we are. Yet you love us anyways, and we thank you for that. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to live for ourselves, but that we would live to bring honor and glory and, and praise to you. Uh, that we would not seek to live for ourselves, but that we live our lives and spend our lives Oh, however much time we have left, I pray that you'd help us to spend our lives uh, making much of you. Because you are the only one who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and worship and fear. So, Lord, I pray that you would empower us to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.